Hey, family. It's your girl, E, and this is The Call, where we hear from wildly inspiring and interesting women about their journey to answer their life's calling. Today, I want to do something a little different and let you hear some audio from an event that I participated in a few weeks ago. Check this out. Before we end, I definitely want to ask everyone here something that's perhaps a little on the nose for the title of this session. But if you could time travel back to episode one of your podcast, um, what is the advice that you would give yourself? When you're creating something, think about the one person that you want to reach. Think about one person. Um, You know, we live in a society where we've been taught that mass is better and mass is best. And so we all want to be the next big, huge thing, whatever that is. Um, We all have a vision of Maybe we don't, but a lot of us have a vision of like, I'll make this podcast and it'll become the number one ranked podcast on iTunes. And then someone will see it and buy a television show from it. And then I'll sell a best-selling book from it. And like, maybe I can live off of this. And and all of that is wonderful and kudos to you if it happens. Um, But that the goal, when I step back and realize that, you know, my fear and anxiety over how am I going to reach so many people, that ended the day I was like, but I'm just trying to reach one. I'm trying to reach one person, and if one woman hears this show and afterwards feels you know, more compelled to take a step in her life, if after listening to this show, one woman feels like, you know what, I have what I need to actually take action and do something bigger than I thought, and I know the real about how to do that, then I am successful. And so I think creating your own metrics of success that have nothing to do with numbers, that have nothing to do with things that are beyond your control, that's my sanity model. And I think it also is a model for, for having a really effective and impactful piece of content. Mm, yes. That was me on stage speaking to 500 women creatives and storytellers at WNYC's Work It Festival. It's a festival specifically for women podcasters talking about the how and why of the things that we make and create in the world. And there were some amazing people there. I met the women behind Another Round, Two Dope Queens, Death Money Taxes, Making Oprah, Black Joy Mixtape. Amber Rose was there, y'all, okay? But one of my favorite moments was when I interviewed a brilliant and inspiring woman named Nina Jacobson. So I want to share that conversation with you. Nina, as you'll hear me introduce in the interview, is a Hollywood giant. For years, she was one of the last handful of women to head a Hollywood film studio since the 1980s. She's overseen film production for Walt Disney Pictures, Touchstone Pictures, and Hollywood Pictures, and her track record is pretty lit. It includes The Sixth Sense, Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Princess Diaries, and on and on and on. And since she founded her own production company, Color Force, in 2006, she's proven that she doesn't really need the good old boys platform to do her thing. Now she tells the kind of stories that she really wants to tell, like that of a strong, capable woman protagonist in Hunger Games, or a complex story about race and gender in one of the best pieces of television I saw this year, American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, which I watched on demand like 10 times. Because we were talking to a room full of creatives, we get in the weeds a bit. We talk about what she uses for inspiration and her favorite podcast, but To me, some of the most important gems come when she talks about how she's working as a woman to advance diversity and representation in the industry. And also, not just as a woman, but as a human who makes mistakes. When we were backstage getting our makeup done, we were talking about just how much effort she puts into making sure that her work is authentic and representative, telling powerful stories of women, of people of color, of LGBTQ folks, hiring cinematographers who know how to light different skin tones, how she uses people around her for a gut check. She's the real deal. 
And she's a great example of how we all can answer our professional calling with our values intact and make our work have impact. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I and all the women at the Work at Festival did. Here's Nina Jacobson on The Call. Good morning. I can't even believe you all are here at 9 a.m. in L.A. Give yourselves a round of applause. (laughs) Uh, I think one of the things that's, for me, been so transformative about these past two days, um, yes, the panels have been great, the conversation has been wonderful, but really it's just being able to be in the presence of brilliant, creative female storytellers. We don't often get to congregate like this, and so every time I get in a room, I love to suck up whatever energy and wisdom I can gain um, from my peers, and certainly from people who have been wildly successful women storytellers. I'm honored today to be able to do that with Nina Jacobson. Nina is quite literally a force, and also her company is called Color Force, Um, but she's been a force in Hollywood for over 30 years. Um, as an executive at Disney, also as a producer now running her own company, Color Force. She is behind um, such franchises as Diary of a Wimpy Kid, small films like The Sixth Sense, um, and one that you may have heard of, Hunger Games. Um, And out of all of those, my absolute favorite, the American Crime Story series. Anybody see the O.J. Simpson, the first season of it? That's because of Nina. Um, So in in addition to all of this work, she's got such a diverse body of work. She's also been very vocal and and outspoken her entire career about the need for and her own commitment to increased inclusion, inclusivity, diversity in entertainment, both behind the camera and front of the camera and everywhere that she goes. Um, So I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you today, Nina. Let's give Nina a round of applause for being here. All right, so my first question to you actually has to do with why you're even here at a podcast festival, and it's because I hear you are obsessed with podcasts, right? Yes. Okay, so tell me what you love right now. Like, what are you loving and listening to? And then in general, I want to know why you love podcasts so much. How has that, if at all, informed your work? Um, well, okay, I'll, I'll just, I, that's why I brought my phone out here. I thought I would have to maybe have a quick peek um, at what's currently on tap. On my way over, I listened uh, just on my drive today. I mean, part of why I love them is because I live in LA, so I'm in my car a lot. Yep. And I have, I'm a very, like, a restless mind, and I just um, have, like, a nonstop appetite to hear stories, to hear smart people, to just, uh, I'm an omnivore. My, right now, I mean, every day I listen to The Daily without fail. Every night I'll listen to the Rachel Maddow podcast version of her show. Um, and I often just prefer listening. I don't know. I, when it comes to news and things like that, I can do it when I'm walking my dog. I can do it when I'm in the kitchen or, mm-hmm. you know, running from one place to the next and certainly in my car. And when you say prefer, you mean over watching, Yeah, right? like when it comes to, like, an interview format or a news format and even some of the storytelling. I mean, obviously, I love movies. I love television. But uh, there's a certain pleasure to audible experiences, and I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Right now, I would say I'm obsessed with uh, Ear Hustle, mm-hmm. which I love. <laughs> Ear Hustle fans. Um, I love Reply All, um, Radio Lab. I just listened to Stay Tuned with Preet this morning on my way in. Um, one fan, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, criminal, <laughs> I, you know, criminal's fantastic. And then I'll, you know, some of, like, I'll go specific for, like, the Lawfare podcast if they have something that's interesting to me. 
And then some of the things that are not like in season right now that I love, I love Accused, Crime Town. We're actually developing it as a TV series at FX. I listened to Richard, Missing Richard Simmons. I listened to Mogul, which I loved. S-Town, obviously. And I actually <laughs> just... You love uh, <laughs> My son and I devoured uh, The Unexplainable Disappearance of Mars Patel, which I thought was an incredible narrative podcast. So that's a few. That's like just <laughs> that's a few. That's more than a few that you love podcasts, which is amazing. But okay, so you said you like listening to them because, first of all, you prefer listening, right? The audible experience. But what about it has informed your work as, as you know, a, a, a storyteller in a visual medium? Well, I think for one, you know, just great storytelling is great storytelling. For what I do, I just, I just need a lot of stimulation, just as a person, but also. Like the, you know, that yes song, don't surround yourself with yourself. It's very mm-hmm. easy when you are immersed in production and development that all you're reading are scripts. All you're watching is, you know, kind of your what you have to be watching. And just pulling in like new ideas, new thoughts, new ideas of characters, new ideas of sort of storytelling techniques, all of that, it keeps me fresh and I draw from it when I'm trying to solve, you know, we spend a lot of time as a dramaturg, you know, in my job. I've spent quite a bit of time giving notes on scripts, giving notes on what I've read or seen. And I find that if I can, like, sort of pull from different media, different, uh, completely different subjects, Mm -hmm. but that kind of cross-pollination just sort of keeps me inspired. So you mentioned, you said, you know, good storytelling is good storytelling no matter the medium. But I'm curious to know, when you listed off, you know, just a handful of the, the podcasts that you're listening to, and then you said there was one that you're actually in the process of developing. Which one was it? Crime Town. Crime Town. So you're in the process of developing that. How do you know of all the good stories and the good storytelling that you consume, which, which are the stories that you should be telling, right? Because there's good, and then there's right for you, and right for your, your, both your voice, your point of view, and even your investment. How do you make that decision? Well, with something like Crime Town, you know, it has um, it has a great protagonist for one. So obviously, when you're looking at adaptation, you're always looking for well, how am I going to sustain this? Whether it's two hours or ten hours or five seasons of a show, mm-hmm. you're looking for character dynamics, a character premise, basically that is sustainable. Something like Ear Hustle, which I love, I know it'll fit in somewhere. I mean, I what I find with the Air Hustle is that the um, the humanity of these guys who are, you know... Describe Air Hustle for those Ear, who don't Air know. Air Hustle is, um, at, is, is made at San Quentin Prison, um, and it is a collaboration between the woman who's brought this podcast to San Quentin, and then she has her other, her co-producer and partner is a prisoner, and then they have subject matter that for each one about questions that people have or questions that they want to explore about life behind bars. Mm -hmm. And what is so striking in hearing the voices of these really now invisible men is just their humanity, their complexity, their likability, the longing, the things that they care about. And it just, you'll you'll never look at a prison story the same Mm -hmm. again. Um, and the question of mass incarceration, you think of in completely different terms just by getting to know these guys. So something like that just sort of informs me overall. Mm-hmm. And I know that somehow it's going to fit in, but I don't know how. Something like Crime Town 
it had a, a sort of sustainable character premise, this kind of collision course in some ways between the mayor of Providence and the mob boss of Providence. I went to college in Providence, so we know the way that that town worked. And we felt like there was enough there that we, in terms of a cast of characters and how they all kind of kept complicating each other's lives, mm -hmm. that we'd be able to sustain a series based on it. So it sounds like most, and I know not all, but most of your calculation really is about the quality of the story and how you'll be able to tell it, and not necessarily as much as one might assume with you being a Hollywood executive about necessarily the market, right, or the audience, or how much does that come into play? Um, I'm a, a big believer that, you know, if something doesn't just grab me, like the first and foremost, the book you can't put down, the script you can't put down, the podcast you can't stop listening to, you know, any story that is irresistible, mm -hmm. if I've had that reaction, I have to extrapolate and hope that other people will too. Oftentimes, I think the more individual something is, the more universal it is. Mm -hmm. The more you try to please people, the less people you please. And so I do think about, well, who would go see it? But I don't think about that first. I actually mostly think about the subjective experience of... I can't get this off my mind. Mm -hmm. And that that, the sort of human storytelling relationship, and if it brought me to the campfire, chances are it'll bring other people oh, to Oh, I like that, if it brought you to the campfire. So then you're, part of your role then, after identifying the great story is, a part of it is then identifying who are the right voices to tell that story. And so I know for the third season of American Crime Story, you're looking at a particular narrative in, um, in and around Hurricane Katrina. And I read that you specifically looked for um, black writers from the South, right, to, to fill up your, your writer's room. How important is diversity? In, I mean, to me, that seems like an obvious and a no-brainer. Most of us know that when we look at content, we see stories that are written about women that don't have women in the writer's room or stories that are written about people of color that don't have people of color in the writer's room. How important is it for you that that be um, a part of all of your projects? Well, it's, it's hugely important because ultimately... You know, you can certainly immerse yourself in research. You can immerse yourself in asking questions. But ultimately, again, that subjective experience, you know, we each walk in the world in our own way, and there is no way for a white person to understand what it is to walk in the world as a not-white person. They're mm -hmm. just not. Mm -hmm. And there is no way to really understand what an OJ means or a Katrina means to the black community if you don't have voices who can sort of speak a, a truth about that themselves. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the challenge is, is that, um, you know, something like we're about to go into production on a show called Pose, which is um, set in the ballroom scene in the 80s, you know, the world of Paris is burning, the ballroom scene of, you know, trans houses that compete against each other. Mm -hmm. The people who originated that story are cisgender men, okay. but then we had to go and find as many voices as we could to bring in who we knew that obviously on camera we would have trans people, but it's not enough for it to be on camera. So then right. we had to go and recruit. But where it gets challenging is that when you need your sort of senior writer, it, Hollywood tends to be a backwards-facing loop. So you're looking for people who have done something great before. And then mm -hmm. you can say, oh, I loved, you know, the 
movie they directed. I love the script that they wrote that turned into this show or that movie. Um, and so since so many of those positions have historically been occupied by white men, mm -hmm. it's hard to get the experienced person necessarily. There are some, but they are really in huge demand. Mm -hmm. And so, and especially right now, we're finally, at least there's some traction on the fact that there's an enormous market and appetite for more diverse and inclusive storytelling. A lot of the most seasoned people of color who are head writers, for instance, for a TV show, they're all spoken for. They're telling their own stories, they're doing their own thing. And so you're having to break new talent and bring them up in the system in hopes that they will become that person. But sometimes you still get stuck with the people who've done it before, mm -hmm. not necessarily being as diverse a group as you wish that they were because so many of those folks are spoken for. Yeah, I mean, I think that that conundrum, which I firmly believe is solvable, but it's true for many industries and not just Hollywood, right? That because white men have run most things yeah. uh, into the ground <clears throat> um, for a very, very long time, <laughs> right? For a very, very long time. And so you're having to find new talent and open doors and provide opportunities for folks who are, I think, ready and talented and willing um, and just need that opportunity. But you mentioned, you said, you know, kind of we're in this moment right now when diversity is in. Mm -hmm. And I'll even say when the conversation about diversity yeah, exactly. is in, right? Exactly. Of all types, whether you're talking about racial and ethnic, um, you know, sexual orientation, gender identity, all of that is hot right now. And, and part of me is excited, right? I love turning on the television and seeing Issa Rae. I love having all of these options. And yet, even though I am a millennial, I remember television in the 90s, right? And the 90s, you had this kind of diversity of stories that were being told, and then it disappeared. So the cynic in me sometimes feels like, ah, this is just a cycle. This is a wave. People are feeling real nice, and then it'll disappear. You have your own perspective and vantage point from, from where you sit and having seen Hollywood and, and, and knowing what's happening now. I'm curious, what excites you about kind of the, the trend towards diversity? But if anything, what might concern you or make you cautious about it? Um, I mean, I, I don't think that this one, I don't think it's going to go away this time. I, I think that, for one, yeah. all of these great voices are being found and nurtured and um, I think you know, there are people like Ryan Murphy who's really walking the walk and not just talking the talk. He has, you know, the half foundation, every set of a show that we're doing together. There is, he's committed that half of the directors um, who he hires will be, you know, and, and personnel, but particularly on the writing and directing side, will be either women, people of color, mm -hmm. um, or, you know, not straight. And so that opens the door to sort of a training of a next generation. But beyond that, these voices that are emerging, they now become those people who, when you're looking for somebody who's done something great, next year, the mm -hmm. year after, you have Issa Rae or, you know, the, you know, Melina Matsukas or whoever it is to sort of, to now you can look at a body of work. Um, but beyond that, I also just think that the marketplace is proving people are sort of tired of the same old, same old. You know, especially on the film side where television is really challenging film to be as original as television is right now, to be as um, surprising as television is right now. Mm -hmm. And so you can't just keep churning out the same old, same old. And so, you know, something like Crazy Rich Asians, a movie we just finished production on and that we're in post on now, um, it feels incredibly fun and fresh to see 
an all Asian cast in a big mainstream romantic comedy just feels like that's the reason to go to theater. I haven't seen that movie before. It doesn't right. feel like the umpteenth iteration of something I've seen a million times before. So I think that the appetite is there. Mm -hmm. And I think, and the successes are there. I mean, something like um, Hidden Figures was one of the most successful movies of its year. And something like Straight Outta Compton. These movies also blow up some of the traditional mindset that the studios had. I just talked about this the other day um, at a panel, which is, when I was coming up, I was told that, uh, well, you, don't you know that uh, girls will identify with a male protagonist, but boys won't identify with a female protagonist. So this was some sort of a, a scientifically known fact. <laughs> of um, course. And that's why you could cast a boy or a young man, and girls will identify with them. But if you cast a girl or a young woman, that would not, or a woman, it would not, it wouldn't work the other way. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's not really just not true. And it's been proven to be not true over and over again. But every time we prove it, people act surprised, like it's a new newsflash. Um, but now you have, like, see, some of the most profitable movies of the last five, ten years are driven by women, women on in front of the camera, you know, or say uh, something like a the other conventional wisdom. Oh, you know, black movies don't travel. Mm -hmm. You know, tell that to the folks who are cashing their checks from straight out of Compton. Right. <laughs> I love that. So let me ask you, you mentioned you, the, the word surprising. And when you said surprising, my ears perked up a little bit because I think sometimes we see storytellers and, and successful people in general, not just women, but just people who are, um, you know, traditionally successful as kind of hitting a point in their life and career where they know it all, right? You have all the answers. What, <laughs> right? You, you clearly don't feel that way. No. Um, what has surprised you recently in, in your role in this kind of journey of telling stories? What's new or interesting now about, about your work and about the industry? The reason I actually ended up getting into movies in the first place was that when I was in, in college, um, I, when I started studying film theory, it was the first thing I'd ever started to study where the more I learned, the less I knew, and that there was just sort of this bottomless pit of things you could watch, things you could read, things you could think about, things that you thought you understood but that you don't, or that you might look at it in a different way. Um, and again, I think it's part of my love of podcasts. It's just like all of these different voices, these different perspectives. Um, but I would say that, you know, I mean, on the one hand, what has, what has surprised me is the degree to which, for one, audiences, especially in the TV space, they don't care where they're getting the story from. If it interests them, they'll find it. They don't care if it's on Hulu. They don't care mm -hmm. if, it, if it's a podcast versus a YouTube. Interesting stories are finding their audiences. And they couldn't be more different. And yet they have also this sort of common thread of, which is the thing I always ask myself every time. And it's funny because as long as I've done this, I only sort of had this like breakthrough epiphany about what I'm kind of a standard to meet on everything that I work on, which is I always ask myself these two questions. What do I want and what do I fear? If I'm want or fear something during the course of a story, I'm totally engaged. I'm all in. If I get to a place where I don't know what to want and I don't know what to be afraid of, don't open that door, don't go on that date. Um, oh, that, I was just know, about to ask you for an example yeah. when you say what you want and what you yeah, fear. So what you does look, that look like so in a story? So you look at, I mean, I just take a, you know, if you take a movie like Beauty and the Beast, let's say, mm -hmm. you, you deeply want for them to connect. You want him to stop being such a jerk so that they can connect and find each other. And you are incredibly afraid of the sort of, you know, rage of the townspeople who are going to come and 
tear them apart and destroy him, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. you, those two feelings, you're never without them. You're never without desire or fear. Mm -hmm. um, and so bringing that sort of standard to any kind of great storytelling, I mean, in, in, even like, let's say, something like S-Town, you know, you, are, you want him to sort of find his people and you want to, you want to solve this crime. You're afraid that people are going to taste, you know, to, to exploit him. You know, you, you always have an, a, a vested interest. Um, I'm surprised by how much that is true, no matter what it is that I'm taking in mm -hmm. and how, uh, and yet, and also let's say the kind of eclectic nature and hungry nature of an audience to find stories that speak to them, mm -hmm. regardless of medium. They don't care what channel, they don't care what studio, they don't care really even what medium. They just want things to speak to them. Yeah. So we've talked about, I would almost categorize this conversation into two different topics. Um, one is we've talked a lot about story, storytelling, your creative process. And then the other, we've talked about diversity and inclusion and representation. And they all sound very nice and neat and simple here when you're talking about them on a panel. But on a day-to-day -day basis and in practice, there's risk involved in both of those things. There's risk involved in telling deeply personal stories and I mean, frankly, there's risk involved in putting that much money into telling these stories. And there's risk involved in kind of um, pushing the limits around diversity inclusion. So, and I think the fear, you mentioned fear, I think fear stops a lot of people from doing both of those things. Fear stops people from creating and telling great stories, a story that is like burning inside of them. And fear also stops people from kind of stepping out on a limb and doing what they know is right for an issue that they care about or community that they care about. So I wanna ask you, having done both, um, what's a time where you got it wrong? Got which part wrong? Take your pick. So either, either, oh my gosh, I thought this was the right story for me to tell. I thought it was great. And man, it just wasn't. Uh, or I was doing my best to like really carry the banner here, the torch for diversity and inclusion, and I screwed up so bad. Um, I mean, the, the main thing that I think, I do think there is a lot of fear, by the way. And I think that, uh, you know, I was talking to an, a kind of a colleague of mine at one point about this, which is that I think, you know, they're in creative, in sort of a collective creative on enterprise, there's actually, a, should be a lot of healthy, respectful friction, mm -hmm. a lot of pull, push and pull back and forth. And I think that oftentimes that people are more comfortable knowing that they're going to have fights, arguments, and they can all be done with respect, but you're going to have a lot of push and pull. People are often more comfortable having it with somebody who looks like them. Mm -hmm. And they're, because they're afraid that they're going to say the wrong thing. They're going to ask the wrong question. Um, they're going to step in it. They're going to inadvertently be accused of, of being a sexist if it's a guy, of being a racist if it's a white person. And, um, and, and yet, and that fear of being, that I'm going to somehow be politically incorrect actually ends up holding people back from, mm -hmm. go ahead, make some mistakes. It's better to make some mistakes mm -hmm. and ask some dumb questions than to be afraid to, to take that. Say it for the people in the back, Nina. Um, so, <laughs> um, and, uh, but I mean, I would say, you know, a case of sort of realizing that we had gone astray was something like uh, Katrina. We put together an incredible room on the first iteration of Katrina. Mm -hmm. um, amazing people, we set out to have be inclusive. We set out to make sure that we told the 
as much as we could of the full complexity of the story. And of, this is writer's room you're talking the about? The writer's room for okay. Katrina, yes. And then we, and we were ready to go. I mean, we were, it was supposed to be the second season of the show. Um, and we had cast it. Mm-hmm. We were gearing up to go into, a, you know, hard pre-production. And we just looked at it and we were like, you know, it's not as personal as we want it to be. It's not as complex as we want it to be. It's not as, as hard as we have tried. It's not as compelling. I don't know um, that it is, it's not as good as it has to be. No mm-hmm. matter how right the process might have been, if it's not good enough, mm-hmm. if it's not compelling enough, then we're not doing justice to it at all. And we had to do the really painful thing of calling people and saying, sorry, but we're not gonna go. We're not gonna do it now. We're gonna pull forward um, Versace, which is ready to go. Mm-hmm. That's gonna, now the second season. Now the, the show's second be about season. Versace. And okay. we're going to uh, reconceive our approach to make it more personal, more intimate, to focus on this book, Five Days at Memorial which is sort of a microcosm of the larger Katrina story. And it touches on all of the same themes and ideas, but it does so in a way that is really intimate, really character-based, really challenging. And that felt, we, the, our best two episodes that we had were those two. Mm-hmm. And we were, like, were of the smaller story within yeah. the broader Katrina narrative. Yeah. Take me back to the moment when you made the decision that, ugh, this, this ain't going to work, and we got to pull back, right? Because that's, that's a big deal. It was huge. It was really hard. It was very hard. You know, we were lucky to have partners who trusted us because it's hard. It's very painful. It's embarrassing to say, sorry, I know you think you're doing this next. As an, to an actor you have, you know, contracted with. And, but ultimately, the, the making something that you know isn't as good as it should be, could be, has to be, mm-hmm. Um, no matter what the expense of not doing it is, the expense of doing it is greater, not just because it may or may not succeed, but because you're trying to build um, a brand and a brand equity. And you want to make sure that people know when they watch this show, it's going to challenge them and it's going to push them. And that, uh, but it was hard. It was a, it was a tough, tough call to make mm-hmm. and a, a bunch of tough calls. Um, and yet... And that doesn't, that's not to say that the room that we will now put together in the reboot won't be also an inclusive room. Right. But we had a wonderful group of people and we disbanded and started over. So how do you know in the, in, in the end, when it's all said and done with a particular film project or TV project, any creative endeavor, how do you, Nina, when you go home, decide that was a success for me? I want it to matter. I want it to matter it takes an enormous amount of time, money, energy. It takes me away from my family. I oftentimes think about, you know, because I have kids, I think about, you know, with Crazy Rich Asians, I think about what it'll be like for a, you know, an Asian girl to drive down the street on her way to school and see a big giant poster for a Hollywood movie mm-hmm. with somebody who looks like her. Uh-huh. Um, with something like OJ for people to say, you know, I... I hated Marcia Clark, I hated Chris Darden, or I hated Johnny Cochran, but now I kind of get them, or I was surprised that there was more to that than I thought. Um, anytime that you kind of give people an emotional access to something that they, that, that, and a compassion for people that they might not otherwise have it for, that feels like it matters. Anytime that you 
give, a, like say, a, you know, for a little girl to look up to Katniss Everdeen or for a guy to realize like that, I, I want to be her, I, you know, mm-hmm. um, when you, when something, when it matters, then it feels like a success. Um, sometimes that, hopefully it's a financial success. Sometimes something might matter and it doesn't necessarily succeed at the level you wish it did. But then you're good, because you're going to make mistakes. And so if you're going to make mistakes, you still want to know that it mattered. What's one thing, so you're now speaking to an audience of creators of some kind, right? Whether they are themselves podcasters, producers, engineers, or people who are just tangentially connected to the industry of creating and storytelling. What's one piece of advice that you would give this room, um, in particular a room full of women um, who are in, in various stages of this journey of being storytellers and creators in the world? That's a good question. The thing I strive for is kind of a balance between conviction and, you know, a, the courage to have your own voice, to say what you think and be able to articulate it and, and reach people with what you have to say in any given room, in any given creative endeavor, with as great of a humility and receptivity, um, that there is a strength in receptivity that I think women fundamentally understand. And what do you that, mean by receptivity when you say that? that? You, being able to accept that the best idea might come from any quarter, mm-hmm. that in any conversation, in any debate, there is a 50-50 chance that you are wrong. You might be right, you might be wrong, and your position doesn't make you any more likely to be right. Mm-hmm. You can be the most senior person in the room, you can be the most powerful person in the room. It doesn't mean that you're any more likely to be right. <laughs> the person who might have the best idea, that's the, the idea, the free market economy of ideas, that's what should prevail. And so ultimately, being able to listen to your own voice, but actually also have a great interest in the voice of others, I think is something women do understand. It's something that women can... It's, it's a balancing act because it's very easy to be afraid to be outspoken, afraid to be, uh, you know, that kind of girl. Mm-hmm. And you got to be that kind of girl. But you can still be that kind of girl and be able to let somebody else prevail because you actually think that what they had to say made sense and was the more compelling solution or the more compelling way to tell that story. Well, Nina, thank you for being compelling, for having a lot to say, and for being that kind of girl today. I really appreciate the conversation. (laughs) And thank you all so much. Thank you. Thanks so much to Nina for that great conversation. It was recorded live at Work It, a women's podcast festival produced by WNYC Studios at the theater at Ace Hotel in L.A. in October 2017. Shout out to my producer, Melody Rowell, for producing this great episode. And of course, our publisher, Man Repeller. I'm your host, Erica Williams-Simon, and I love hearing from you. Let me know who else y'all want to hear from. So you can reach me on Twitter at Created by Erica or on Instagram at Miss E. Will. Until we talk next week, y'all know what to do. Keep loving, keep fighting, keep dreaming, and above all, keep answering your call. Peace, y'all.